The Relentless Forward podcast is brought to you by GI Associates. GI Associates is one of the largest and best gastroenterology clinics in the southeastern United States. If you are eligible to get your colon cancer screening, which means getting a colonoscopy, then you need to call GI Associates at 601-355-1234. Tell them Ron Strong sent you or Jeremy sent you. And then after you get your screening done, email me, jeremy at runstrong.fit. Tell me you got your screening done and I will and give me your address and I will send you a little gift package as a thank you for getting your screening done and taking control of your own health at GI Associates. Today's guest is one of the most amazing people that I have ever talked to, and I'm not saying that lightly. When I decided to do a podcast four, five, six, seven months ago, um, this guest was at the top of my list, and his name is Chris Waddell. And Chris Waddell is a just an amazing individual. He's a 13-time Paralympic medalist. He won 12 uh, medals in the Winter Paralympics and one medal in the Summer Paralympics. He competed in the Paralympics in 92. 94, 96, 98, 2000, 2002, and 2004. He is in the National Disabled Ski Hall of Fame. He is in the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. He was even named one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. And, most amazingly of all, he summited Mount Kilimanjaro on a hand cycle. And there's a documentary you can watch about that climb and it will blow your mind. It's absolutely amazing. There's more to Chris than just what I've talked about. You'll hear more about it in the episode. Um, So enjoy the podcast. Thank you for listening. Without further ado, Chris Waddell. All right, Chris. I am here with Chris Waddell, um, and it's awesome to talk to you again. And it's really really exciting to have you on the podcast. Um, And I'm pretty sure that this is probably the only time in my life that I will talk to somebody who was named one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. Uh, it might be, it probably is not. Yeah, I mean, sure. it'd be good if, I could, if there were more, but I'm pretty pleased that I get to talk to you. So. <laughs> I'm glad to be your first. That's great, that's great. So yeah, thanks for coming on and welcome. Um, so for those listening, Chris is, uh, this is Chris Waddell. He's an amazing individual, and his motto is, it's not what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you. And, um, you know, for me, especially if you're a listener to the podcast, you know this is a kind of a common theme, but this is powerful to me, and it, it really states very eloquently what I've learned from adversity in my life and how I've seen other people whom I respect and admire, like Chris, deal with adversity. And it's what I'm trying to pass along to others by this show and, and other things that we do. So, to be honest, there's probably nobody on earth who better exemplifies that motto than Chris. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about your background. Let's go back to when you were when you were a younger younger man and uh, where you grew up and college and kind of maybe the we'll talk a little bit about the the um, accident that kind of changed the course of your life. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Western Massachusetts, about an hour and a half west of Boston. The mountains were absolutely gigantic out there. I grew up at a place called Mount Tom, which had 680 feet of vertical, which is, I think it is, it is a little bit more than half the height of the Empire State Building. So that's where we're getting a vertical drop. But I was there all the time. My parents instructed, they were ski instructors. My brother and I both ski raced. We would go there from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 9 o'clock at night. Skiing became a huge part of the culture of our family in a place that really didn't seem like it had mountains. Uh, and so we progressed through the whole thing. I, uh, I was ski racing in college, at Middlebury College in Vermont, when I had an accident. And it was just a freak thing. My ski popped off in the middle of a turn. I fell in the middle of the trail, didn't hit anything but the ground, and broke two vertebrae. And so that damaged the spinal cord and all of that. And, uh, you know, so that was really ultimately, it was a huge change in my life. And in some ways, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of, we, we live our own hero's journeys, right? So this was this was my death and then I had to be the phoenix to come to come 
went back to college, which is pretty amazing when you think of going back to an almost 200-year-old school built mostly out of granite on the top of a hill in northern Vermont in the middle of February in a wheelchair. And you think that is absolutely crazy, but it was the greatest thing that I could have done because it, it reconnected me with my with my friends and, and in a lot of ways meant that I hadn't changed that much, but I had changed as well. So I guess in some ways that is all of our journey, this idea of, of being the Phoenix after after that death. That is, that's amazing. So what so you know, you went back to school and now you're now things have clearly changed in your life. And whenever I tell my cancer story, I always I kind of tell the story a similar way. I say, then I got cancer, and then everything changed. So, yeah. how did um, you know? How did you learn to deal with the accident? And and how did you you know? Some people, when people have accidents, they can kind of go one of two ways. It's a fork in the road. And how did you choose the path that that you did? It's, it's a really interesting question, and some of it I think happens on a subconscious level as opposed to a conscious level. Where I think it became really simple after the accident. It was either you know, life or death. And, and sometimes it just gets reduced to that point and it simplifies our lives to the point of, well, I'm going to win this moment and then I'm going to win the next moment. And, and I couldn't, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot that I could do. I couldn't do much physically. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't work out. But what I could do is I could control the environment to allow my body the best opportunity to heal. And and ultimately what that was 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 maintaining a, a sense of maintaining a sense of optimism, but also maintaining a sense of of, of being in that fight, of, of continuing and not sort of it's not giving up and it's not giving up in each moment. That, that if I didn't give up in that moment, which was really frustrating, then I was better prepared for the next moment. And it really was just that moment-by-moment moment kind of thing that, you know, winning winning each moment. And it created a sense of positive positive momentum, which ultimately is, is what I needed moving forward. It created positive momentum in two ways. One, I started getting better. But two, I realized that I had the ability to control how I looked at my outside world, that I was more powerful. So that's really interesting. So <clears throat> did you have times where you, well, let me back up a little bit. Actually, I, I like what you said because I've heard so many people who have gone through you know, adversity, whether it's a sickness or something or an accident, something like that. And they all talk about, and my wife has talked about this before, how we dealt with the cancer diagnosis was you just, you know, and our friend Wendy deals with things this way. She just moves from one step to the next in a positive way. And she doesn't look, you know, can't you can't look too far down the road. It's just day to day. I was actually talking with a parent yesterday of, a, of someone, they had a daughter who, the daughter is 17 now, but at the age of four had had, had, had cancer. And she, the first thing she said was, you just had to keep, each next moment, you just had to tackle that next moment and tackle the next moment and keep moving on. So I think that's uh, it's pretty interesting and powerful. And I like how you said that because you just have to be optimistic and just tackle the next thing. If you look too far down the road, you can lose hope. You can lose, you know, perspective on what you're doing. Um, it can be pretty challenging. So did you have any um, after the accident? So. Did you just immediately get into that positive kind of one step at a time? Did you have any low points? Any struggles? It's, you know, I cried once in the hospital, which is, which is pretty amazing. It's sort of amazing to me. It's sort of, you know, in some ways, I think that, that it's almost like we're able to view ourselves as we've gone through this stuff and look back and go, are you kidding me? Like, really? I, I, I cried once. And, and that's when I felt like I had lost complete control. So I was in one hospital. I did my surgery all of that stuff, a little bit of rehab, you know, a little bit of PT, and I was moving to the next hospital to get to, uh, you know, to start the real rehab. And and honestly, I felt like that real rehab meant that I was walking out of there. I wasn't going to be in a wheelchair like this is the way it was going to work. You carry a little bit of an ego as an athlete, and I thought, okay, this is it. It might be true for other people, but it's not going to be true for me. I'm walking out of there. Everything's going to be fine. 
and, and, and I also felt like I am willing to do whatever it takes. I, I'm going to do whatever it takes, and, and that's what's going to differentiate me. And so, so I started to do, I, I started you know, going there, and, I, uh, and, it, uh, and so, hold on a second. Uh, so I, I went in, a, in an ambulance from one hospital to the next, and it was just, they hadn't had much snow. It was all frost heaves and potholes the whole time. My spine felt like, I imagined that my spine was like one of those fluorescent tube light bulbs. It was that fragile. So with each bump, I'm just getting more and more tense. And, and, and all that tension, by the time I got to the next hospital, which was about two hours away, I had a urinary tract infection. My temperature spiked to 103. My nurse, who is this awesome guy, who is who is just a godsend, this guy Jim Sullivan, he said, "Welcome, and we're going to pack you in ice to get this temperature. I mean, cold compresses, not really ice, but pack you in cold compresses. You're not going to have any blankets. We need to get this temperature down or 103." Fever will cook your brain. That was not much fun. And so, and I was just exhausted and I just wanted to go to sleep. And that was the, that was the only time that I cried. I said to my mother who was there and, and along for the ride the whole way. And as you know, it's often much more difficult on those around you than it is on you because they don't have much of anything that they can do. They can't affect any change. And I said to my mother, which I'm sure, which I didn't get at the time, but I'm sure was completely heartbreaking to her, was, I don't want to be like this forever. And that's when I cried. But it was almost, it was funny because this mindset of, of winning, of winning every moment came back where, where it was like a tropical thunderstorm where it just, boom, I cried. And then it was, and then I was done. I was like, okay. We gotta get back on track because I can't allow myself to go in that direction because as you know, going in that direction is is a form of death. Is is giving over your power, is losing some of the fight. And what I saw around me might well have been my life moving forward. And I didn't want to be in that life that I saw in the hospital. So that's a challenging moment, but you seem to have got back on track pretty quickly. And then how soon after that did you, so you went back to school a couple months later, then how soon did you start, um, I guess you call it mono skiing, how soon did you get back to skiing? I got back to skiing 362 days after the accident. Roughly, roughly. <laughs> roughly, exactly. The accident was on December 20th. I started skiing in a mono ski, which is misleading. I'll get to that on the 17th of December. I did not make a turn that first day in my mono ski, so I can't really call it skiing. But I got onto a mono ski and fell over a whole lot that first day. But yeah, I started, and I think I probably, I think I did my first race within two weeks of that. Wow. And competed that season, went to nationals that season. And some of it is, some of it is, is I, I, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I feel like getting paralyzed was the closest to death that I'll ever be in my life, and and I survived it. You know, so so there was a moment in the hospital where I thought, well, this is as bad as it's going to get. I, I'm not going to be intimidated again. Because I really shouldn't be. Because I've seen it. You know, I've seen I've seen the worst that it can be, and and I've figured out. You know, I've, I've made it through. I've survived. Okay, so now you're back to skiing, and you're you're getting into it. And you're racing just a couple weeks after it. Well, how long was it before you, um, you know, you you skied in the Paralympics and you won quite a few medals? So how did how soon did you get into to that level? And then tell us a little bit about your successes at that level because it's pretty pretty amazing. Sure. So so I, I started I started racing probably about two weeks afterwards. I did my first nationals that year, and I expected that I was going to. I expected actually at each race that I went to, 
that these people would recognize extraordinary potential and that I would get named to the USD team when I could barely make it down the hill. But this is, yeah, our delusions sometimes empower us to move forward. And and so I went to nationals that year and I fully expected by nationals, which was in, I think they were in April, that I would get named to the US team. I did not get named to the US team. But I, that fall, I went to New Zealand and skied for a month that summer. Then I came back and my coach had coached one of the disabled team coaches when he was at the University of Vermont. So he contacted her and I got invited to their first camp, their early season camp. I, I, I could barely get down the hill. But I had a huge breakthrough that day. And, and effectively, I was kind of like sort of on the team that year, they didn't name me until the end of the year at Nationals, actually before Nationals started in April. So that was so that was really, uh, what was it? It was my second winter of competing that I got named to the team. It was really, you know, so I guess three years after the accident that, that I got named to the team. And then my first Paralympics was that following winter. So... So this was 91 that I got named to the team. My first games were in Alberville in 92. And I won two silvers there. I had this tremendous break. I, I ended up graduating from college right before I went to Alberville. And then I was a full-time athlete that following year and had this tremendous breakthrough. And, you know, which is, which is funny. Just, yeah, I mean, I, I, I had this breakthrough. I wasn't all that good. And then suddenly I started beating everybody, which was, which was kind of good, including including my girlfriend who was a monoskier at the time, you know, my girlfriend at the time who was a monoskier, who was all of like 90 pounds. She used to beat up on me really badly uh, in, in, in skiing, not, not real life right. skiing, she did, which was a little bit disheartening that this little girl could uh, could put a woman on me. But, but at the same time, she put a woman on, on the vast majority of people in the world. So I couldn't feel too badly about myself. But eventually I got to the point where I'm beating her and, pretty much everybody else. So in 93, I really rose to the point where I was the fastest monoskier in the world, which was kind of, which was a big deal for me because I'm in the most disabled of the three classes. The level of your lesion determines the level of your sensation, the level of your function. And I was in the most disabled of the three classes. I had the, the least amount of muscles to work with. And suddenly I was able to beat the guys who, you know, some of the guys who walked up and sat in their skis and double amputees who had all those muscles and everything. So by 93, I was the fastest in the world, but I had to prove it in 94 at the Paralympics. So that's when they had a, a shift in the winter and summer games. So up until 92, it had been both winter and summer on the same, same year. And then for 94, they, they shifted so that the winter games were two years separate from the summer games. So that was perfect timing for me. I ended up winning the downhill overall in in nineteen ninety four in Lillehammer, Norway. So I was the in the fastest event, I was the fastest monoskier. So so I realized a goal that I never really thought was possible. And so so yeah, so I did that and won all four races in Lillehammer, swept everything, which was I think you know, I was born in '68, and that's when John Claude Keeley won all three races in uh, in uh, where do you mean Valdezir? I think it was Valdezir, and he was the only guy who's ever swept all of the all of the races in a winter in, in an alpine event. So I did that in in '94. So you know, following in John Claude Keeley's footsteps, which are not bad footsteps to follow in, ended up winning a total of twelve uh, twelve. Paralympic medals in skiing, and then one in wheelchair racing. So a total, grand total of thirteen Paralympic medals, and with nine world championships. One of the few athletes that world champion do have won world championships in both a winter and a summer sport. That is amazing. That's amazing. And I saw that you were inducted after that into the what you were inducted into a couple of halls of fame, I believe. And I think I saw a skiing magazine named you one of the top 25 skiers of all time. Yes. So the Paralympic Hall of Fame, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, and then you know, one of the one of the 50 uh, or one of the 25 greatest skiers in North America, which is very nice of them to include me on that list. Some of my heroes were on that list. So, you know, nice to be rubbing elbows with them. That's pretty amazing. So you clearly, that's amazing. I love that story of just overcoming and then 
not just overcoming, but excelling at what you do. You embraced your new, you know, your new life, your new situation, and really made the best of it. And that's that's it's hard for people to do. And I think a lot of people are when they deal with adversity. It doesn't have to be adversity in the same level that you know you dealt with, but a lot of people think a lot of these things are a death sentence, and they're they're just their life is over, and they just can't find that positivity. So that's that's absolutely incredible. So. So another thing you did, which I wanted to talk about, because this I even have my shirt on. Nobody can see it, but it's my Conquering Kilimanjaro shirt. Um, so in, I think it was 2009, is that right? You climbed? 2009, September 30th of 2009, we were on the top. So um, for those listening, Chris, uh, this is amazing. Climbed Kilimanjaro, and correct me if I say anything wrong, but basically on a hand cycle. Yep, there's, a hand cycle. Okay. There's a documentary about this you can watch, but I wanted to talk to you about that. So first... You know, how how on earth did you decide to tackle that challenge, and and why? Like, how did you come up with that idea? You know, part of it is interesting, too, and I don't know if this is something that you might have experienced as well, but I didn't go through the depression after my accident. But after retiring, I felt like I lost my identity. So everything that you'd assume that people would go through after that kind of a traumatic event, I had no idea who I was. You know, I knew who I was in the past, like I had won these things and stuff like that, but that wasn't necessarily who I was in the present. So I didn't know that. I didn't know my purpose. I felt in some ways like I had spent all of my, I had spent everything I could do you know, to, to get to get to that successful point. And it seemed like when I retired that nobody really cared. And, and I didn't want to be passionate. And, and in a lot of ways, my passion was the thing that pushed me to succeed. And, and this sense of optimism in a lot of ways, this sense of like winning that moment, was the thing that allowed me to, in some ways, you know, achieve a miracle. But I cut myself off from that, and I was really, I was really actually went through the depression afterwards, which which seems mind-boggling when you think, well, you've achieved so much, you can do whatever you want to do. It's like, well, I don't know what I want to do, and and it was really hard to get here, and and so I went through that whole thing. I was out on my off-road hand cycle one day, and I climbed this mountain bike trail by my house, and then I was going down the same trail. And I literally, a thought tapped me on the shoulder. A, you know, this thought said, you should climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And it's kind of like I started looking around, just going, where did that thought come from? I had no idea. It didn't come from me. But somebody at one point said, your subconscious is your true self bubbling to the surface. It might have been like Ann Landers or somebody like that who said that. I forget. It was, it was one of those people. But anyway, it sounds really true. And, and so it bubbled to the surface. And what was important for me as an athlete is that I could stretch your imagination. I could force you to see the world a little bit differently. If I went 70 miles an hour on one ski, that picture didn't fit with the picture of somebody in a wheelchair. And, and I could do that not only for myself, which was important, but for the hundreds of millions of people in the world who are disabled. And, and in some ways, you know, physical disabilities, in a lot of ways, to change that narrative from, oh, that's too bad, to what do you do? And climbing Kilimanjaro in a lot of ways was an easier, an easier way to achieve that than competing in the Paralympics. Because we all are climbing our mountain, we're all we're all Sisyphus in some ways, right? That we're all pushing that boulder up to up to the top of the mountain, and 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 it's an ongoing process. So people understand the metaphor of climbing a mountain because we're all doing it, and and, and so it was really instead of man versus another man, it was man versus mountain, or man versus our challenge, our our difficulty, and so that's why I decided I wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro because. Because I could make a great, far greater statement than just about myself, and yeah, it really, it, it really, it was the thing that brought me out of that depression was having a having a purpose greater than me myself. Let's talk about how you actually climbed the mountain, then too. You know, if there's a so, what's the name of the documentary that people can watch about One this? Revolution. The number one revolution. 
One revolution. I've seen parts of it. It's absolutely astonishing. So how? So you decide you want to climb Kilimanjaro, and I've have, have it, had this been done before. Had anyone tried to do it on a hand cycle in any way? People had tried to do it on a hand cycle, and nobody had been able to make it to the top unassisted, which I think is still out there because I, I you know, I, I went through. There was there was a period of uh, hundred feet over these boulders that my team had to carry me. So. So it's still it's still undone, but I'm not going back. I don't think I'm, it's giving me everything I need. <laughs> well, I've been on Kilimanjaro, and I know I it's incredibly challenging and how to get up there in a hand cycle. So how did you actually find? Did you did you design a hand cycle that was specific for this for that task? To a certain extent, yes, and to a much greater extent, we we piggybacked on a guy named Mike Oxberger. So Mike Oxberger had, had worked with Merlin. He was he was building custom mountain bikes, and he saw at one point. He remembered seeing back when the Soviets were in Afghanistan. So this is a long time ago. This is back in the '80s. Somebody getting around in a wheelchair in that just rocky mountainous terrain, and he said, "You don't need a wheelchair there. You need an off-road hand cycle." And Mike's a bit of a he's a super super smart guy, like mad scientist kind of guy who's just looking to solve problems and, and he decided that what we needed was an off-road hand cycle three-wheeled hand cycle i guess they had developed three wheels three-wheeled cars and the front wheels were always in the front or the two wheels were always in the front it was more stable that way and he was doing all kinds of research on on different vehicles his background as an athlete was as a trials rider both as a motorcycle trials rider and then as a mountain bike trials rider so his objective was always let's clean this let's find a way to get up this thing without touching and, and so again problem solving I mean, this is this is what this guy does he, he solves problems and and so he decided he wanted to build this he was in florence massachusetts which is about 15 minutes from where my parents house was and the local newspaper had written an article on me he called me and said would you like to be my first test pilot I was like, yeah, this sounds awesome. And as a kid, we'd always run in the woods, you know, on the mountains near us and the trails and stuff like that. So, so I said, yeah, this is great. He developed this vehicle rear-wheel drive because your weight is over the rear wheel. So then you get traction where a lot of, like, the on-road hand cycles are front-wheel drive. And once you get up, I have right at my house right now, we're on, we have a little bit of a dirt road just to get to the road. I am constantly just trying to get that little hill right at the end of the road so that, I, so that I can make it up because the front wheel just loses traction. But he developed this vehicle, and and it was it was really really good. We decided that we wanted to. So I rode this vehicle training. My guide was a guy named Dave Penny, who had been one was just a crazy endurance athlete lived in Crested Butte runs for three hours a day in Crested Butte you know from like 9k up to 14k just you know, would, would guide in the Himalayas and would do three 14ers in a day run up to the top run down run up run down and then sleep on the top so that he could acclimate to what he was going to find in the Himalayas that's uh wow that's cool. Good for you. That's awesome. So Dave was my guy, but he also had been a bike mechanic in Crested Butte when they started building mountain bikes. So he was a problem solver as well. And on all of our hikes, he would we would be talking about it. Like there were places that lose traction or whatever, and we say, "Well, do you think we could do this? And do you think we could go narrower?" And so we ended up going from three wheels to four wheels, fixed axle, rear wheel drive, and the backs of both wheels spun at the same time. We made an error so we could fit on the on the trail. We also took that back wheel and put it almost directly underneath my hips, which meant that my, all of my weight was really over the axle, which greatly improved traction. So, uh, so yeah, so we we developed it. But the thing is, we developed probably like five percent of the vehicle, and Mike did. 95 percent you know he went from zero to infinity and, and we kind of tacked a little bit on top of that so even with all those modifications i've watched the video if you you had to you were still losing traction in a few spots especially when it got really steep in fact at one point in the video you you're on a what appears to be pretty steep 
And then you say something like it's going to get steeper ahead. And the next scene is just the angles about 20% more. And the porters, I think were laying out some boards underneath to try to get you traction up there. Um, but how did you train for that? How did you get prepared for that? For I mean, I know you, you live in the mountains, so you probably were, well, I don't know, this was 2009. So I don't know if you were acclimated to the altitude, but how do you physically train for something like that? And, you know, emotionally, it's a big undertaking for you. You know, how did you, how did you handle that? Training was everything that ever went wrong in my life. <laughs> in a lot of ways, it's exactly it, right? I mean, no matter who we are, things are going to go wrong, and we find a way to make them go right. And I think in a lot of ways, that was that was so much of the training was, was just knowing that things were going to go wrong and that I could find some sort of solution. The actual specific training was a lot of, it was, it was a callousing effect. We would go out for six hours, eight hours. I'd come back and be so exhausted that I couldn't get in and out of the shower and then go for six or eight hours the next day. We did the White Rim Trail. We did the full White Rim Trail, which is 103 miles in three days. And, and you know, in like 90, 95 degrees, all of this stuff. And, uh, yeah, and, and so, so we did... We did a lot of stuff, and this was this is where I looked at Dave because he was an endurance guy. This was this was his deal was let's let's just go as far as we can, as long as we can. That was his whole life. Where I was really a sprinter. I didn't do a meaningful international competition lasted longer than two minutes. So I went from two minutes to eight to ten hours a day when I was on the mountain. So it was it was really was the callousing effect of just. Continuing to go out, my arms were an inch smaller in circumference than they were when I was racing because it became so much more aerobic than it was anaerobic. So when I was racing wheelchairs, it was really more anaerobic. And this, I just had to turn myself into an engine and just maintain RPMs and just sort of sort of roll over stuff with momentum as opposed to That's amazing. So how long were you, so you get to <clears throat> Tanzania, I assume, you went to Tanzania, and how long did it take you to get up the mountain? Um, how many days, and how big of a team did you have? You, you had some porters, I assume, that had to bring some of your gear along. You couldn't carry everything. No. So we had, so on my specific team, we had eight people on the team. We had, we had my doctor, we had the, the, uh, the chair of my board, we had the director of the film, the director of photography, the cinematographer, the guy who did who did everything else, like managing the diesel generators so that we could download cards onto the solid-state hard drive because your regular hard drive doesn't spin over 10,000 feet or something like that. So he was the guy who was doing that and sound and, and editing and everything else. And then Dave, and then me, and then we had 69 porters, 69 who were, I think each camera guy had four or five porters with all of their equipment. We carried up a, a second rig in case I needed that, in case something broke. Uh, there was a guy who carried my wheelchair, you know, it's, it's, it's Africa, so, it, so they carry so many things on their head, so this guy's walking with my, with my wheelchair upside down on his head because I needed the wheelchair in camp. To get around and you know the cooks and yeah we had 69 porters we were we were a traveling circus that's incredible so how long did it take you to summit and then tell me about what it was like when you reached the summit how did that feel for you it took six and a half days to get up we stayed in the first three days we were on the same pace as everybody else and actually we did the porters road for the first 2,000 feet and for me, I did that, I think, an hour and 54 minutes, which, which I was like, okay, we're right on trekking pace. I fell off of trekking pace very quickly after that. But you know, most trekkers will do sort of 1,000 feet. That's sort of the standard, 1,000 feet an hour. And so I was right on trekking pace. Uh, so the first three days we went, we went up the Marangu route. We did the huts. I made it to each hut. In, in the prescribed amount, of, well, in the prescribed day, not necessarily the amount of time. I think the first day was six hours, second day was ten hours, third day was eight hours. And so they were just long, long days. 
and then took a day off at Kibo Hut at 15,500 feet. And then what they typically do is they wake people up in the middle of the night, which I'm sure this is what you do, wake you up and you know you hallucinate on the way up as it's cold, dark, and you have no idea what's going on, and you're at high altitude, and then you arrive for sunrise when you get to the top. We didn't do that. We got up early in the morning, but that, what you did in that last overnight took me two and a half days on the actual cone of of the mountain where it just got really steep and really loose, just 10 inches of pea gravel on this free field. And you went back and forth probably, you know, doing these switchbacks. And the switchbacks were more difficult for me to do, so I just went straight up the switchback part of it. Yeah, it was six and a half days to get up and a day and a half to get down, which is pretty much what everybody else does. That is just astonishing. I can almost not wrap my mind around it. Remembering back to being up there from the Kibu Hut and heading up and how steep it was. And even coming down, you know, we came down, a lot of us came down the scree field. We kind of glissaded down the, the scree field. But the whole place up there, it's, it's, people think Kilimanjaro is just a lot of hiking. And it is for the first part. But then when you have to get up on summit day from Kibu Hut to the summit or to the, you know, the crater rim, it's steep and loose and it's a little bit treacherous and how you manage to do that i just can't imagine i strongly recommend anybody watch that watch the video um you're just going to be amazed that anybody could have done something like that so well let's move on into the crater, actually oh you so went, went into the crater and then went down into the crater across the crater and then up the other side <laughs> because the crater rim trail was too narrow yeah, you had to walk on the crater rim. You went through some real narrow passages from uh, Stella. I guess it was with the Stella Point up to Uhuru. There were some real narrow passages. Yes, yeah. So that's where we went into the crater and slept in the crater. We slept at eighteen five in the crater. That was our our last camp. Was it at the at the crater? Wow, that's quite an experience. There's not many places in the world you can get to stay at eighteen thousand five hundred feet. So that's pretty awesome. Not a lot of hotels at that point. No. <laughs> well, so let's let's move on. That's pretty amazing. Um, and when we, by the, towards the end of the podcast, we'll give I'll give out some information where people can go look at all this stuff and where they can get in touch with you, so we can they can check this out for themselves. But so another thing that I found pretty fascinating, I was before we were going to have this call um, or do this recording, I did just some research on you, and I found that NPR had once named your 2011 commencement speech at your alma mater, Middlebury College, as one of the greatest commencement speeches ever, and and I think it is. I found a transcript of it somewhere, and I, 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 think, it's, I think I read this right, but I, I took a, I'm going to read a little excerpt from that, if that's okay, and, sure. and then we'll talk a little bit about it, so... Unless you have it all memorized, you might be able to say no, it all again. Right now. No, no, no. Actually, as before you do this, the funny thing is, I never speak with notes, and so I was petrified the week before that I was going to lose direction and forget what I was supposed to say because it was really it was probably the most nervous I've ever been for any speech, just because you feel like you need to impart some knowledge to them. Plus, there were all the professors who had judged me for four years as I was going through school and. got an A plus from somebody if somebody thought it was the greatest. Yeah. So I quote, uh, no matter who we are, no matter how well educated we are, no matter how successful we are, no matter how well we insulate ourselves, something will happen that cuts us to the bone. Something will force us to question ourselves in the formative decisions that we've made. Whether death of a loved one, parent, friend, child, disease, accident, divorce, bankruptcy, something will happen. And that's when the idea of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you comes into play, end quote. And I, that, I've been trying to say that in a million different ways for so many years, and I read that, and I just, it was the most perfectly put, just, it's such a, it's just so well done. But I, I just found that powerful. Now, you also then, in that, you told a story, and this is also powerful, you told the story of a little girl who you had gotten back from maybe... The, Nepal, Tibet? Uh, I was when I was from, in Tibet, yes, exactly, yeah. 
So you got back from Tibet, you were getting your mail, and a little girl rode up in her bike, and she asked you what happened to your legs. And you tried to explain to her. Can you tell us that story? It'd be better coming from you. Sure, yeah. So this little girl, so I went, to, I went from the airport to my mailbox, because you, know, you want to pick up your mail, you want to see what you missed. And I drove up, and I started pulling my wheelchair out, and I'm putting the wheels on. This little girl rode up, and she's like, She's like six years old, you know, little pink bike, pink, pink, uh, pink streamers coming off the handlebars, and she said, what happened to your legs? And, you know, and, and the thing is, there are hundreds of millions of people without throughout the world who who have physical disabilities. I didn't really feel like answering her question, but I felt like I had to because, for the most part, people become invisible. It's really easy to become invisible if, if you know, from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at someone who looks different. So I answered her question as best I could, and I told her that I had a skiing accident, that I was a ski racer in college, and that I broke two vertebrae. I tried to describe it in ways that she could understand. I said, you know, those little bumps on your back, well, those are bones, and those bones protect the nerves, and the nerves take the message from the brain to the rest of the body. And because I broke two of those bones, it's like cutting a power cord. So now the message doesn't go from my brain to my legs or my legs back. And I didn't know how well I was doing. She's six years old. I'm doing my best to, to describe it to her. But she said, uh, she said, so you'll never walk again. And I said, no, probably not. And she rode away. And as she rode away, she said, well, that's too bad. And I wish that I had stopped her because if I hadn't had my accident, I never would have been the best in the world at anything. I became the best mono skier in the world, but I wouldn't have had those experiences of traveling throughout the world to compete, meeting you know, presidents and heads of state, the Dalai Lama, these kinds of things. And it's, uh, you know, it, it is the idea of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do, it's what happens because you have no idea where your life is going to go. You might be able to look back and imagine, well, if this hadn't happened to me, this is what I would have done. And that really is probably more imagination than anything else. But it really, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't want to change the experiences that I've had for for that moment. And so, so yeah, it was really powerful. I have not seen that little girl since. She was like an apparition in some ways. It's almost like to create, crystallize this moment to give me this story. So if she's ever listening, and she's listening to your podcast, like. Thank you. I don't know your name, but thank you, little girl, who probably now is no longer a little girl because it's been a while. My wife and I, it's interesting, my wife and I struggle with this when we talk about cancer. People always say, oh, don't you wish you could go back and never have cancer? And it's such a weird question for me. And I, we've, we always say, no, I don't think we would because it changed the course of our lives so drastically both in the short term and long term it's just changed the way we look at life so when i read those parts of what you had said it just it was so powerful because it's you you can't go back and you and you might think some people might think i bet you wish you could go back again but there's so many things that you get because of what happened to you because of you deal with you dealt with what happened to you it's what you did with what happened to you well we're a product of our experiences right we're a product of the way that we process our experiences. And, and yeah, I mean, I look at it like I never would have met my wife if I hadn't had my accident. We would have traveled an entirely different world. So, you know, you look at the things that come out of this, and yeah, it's, yeah, I, 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 we don't have, yeah, it, it's easy to get stuck in the past, I think is what it comes down to. But there's a whole lot in the present, the future that, that seems pretty great. So, I don't know why getting stuck in the past seems like it didn't make any sense at all. I agree. So you've moved on to other stuff now. So you're an, you're an author also. So tell us a little bit about, I think, in fact, last year when we were at our mutual friend uh, Doug's house where I met you, actually my wife had seen you before. You had come to speak at her place of employment here in Mississippi a few years before. Um, but when we met you, I think you were in the process of writing, I believe, a children's book. Is that correct? And tell us about some of the some of the things you've done there.
it's 7,200 words. It's a hardcover book. And, and I, it is. It's just those things that, that I want to remember and I forget. And it's funny. I have a friend who was just here, this guy who was just here, who's kind of helping us potentially with some of what we're doing with our house. And, and he, I'm just looking to see if it's still there. Because uh, he, he, he read my book and quoted me back to me. And I went, wow. Like that, that actually sounds really, really good. And it's kind of, it was, uh, I, oh, I have to find it just in order to find the actual, uh, the actual quote, which is really funny. Because uh, I, I, I listened to it, I was like, wow, man, that's, that sounds smart. Like, who said that? <laughs> well, it's from your book. Well, okay, it's still smart, I guess. I don't know, you know. Uh, so, so as I'm looking for that, yes, yeah, so I did that. I did a children's book, which I actually did initially for my wife's birthday. It's called Is It Lonely to Be a Four-Leaf Clover? It's about a four-leaf clover that, that is hiding what makes it unique. And to look into the dandelion, Jean is, Jean, my wife, is a big fan of dandelions. And, and because she thinks they're bold, they're fierce, and they'll grow where nothing else will grow. And so the the, uh, the four-leaf clover meets the dandelion, and they end up, it's pretty Disney, but they end up falling in love, and the four-leaf clover ends up becoming pregnant. The question is, what is the baby going to look like? And my wife is blonde, and the, and the you know, the, four -leaf, or the uh, dandelion is yellow, blonde, let's call it blonde as well. So kind of thinking it would be blonde, and you're thinking, okay, it's going to look like a like a tulip or fortified like a yellow rose and, and it ends up that it looks like it looks like all of us the final page is a mirror that we are all as unique as a four-leaf clover and as bold and fierce as the dandelion so those are the two that I've done but I am now embarking everybody asks and I'm sure they asked you after, after climbing Kilimanjaro like what are you going to do next and I am embarking, I'm turning 50 on the 28th of September. So it's literally, I think it's almost a month, you know, on the first it will be a month, which is, and I'm going to publish my memoir serially to my blog. So every two weeks I will publish a chapter, but I'm also doing a video podcast with people who've been important to my life. And, and to that particular chapter. So, so in a lot of ways, I've been going back and meeting with people who've been important to me, people I haven't seen in in forever, in some ways. So, like, I went back and met with my very first college, or my, not my college ski coach, my ski coach from when I was six years old to ten years old, and he's retired from being a ski coach now. He actually became an athletic director at a ski academy and these kinds of things, but. Uh, but when he retired, he started doing bike tours. He now is in Patagonia, Arizona, which is on the Mexican border. So as far from Lake Placid, where he was working after I, after he had left us, and as you could possibly imagine. And and so just so great to, to reconnect with these people. So I'm doing a written chapter, a, a video podcast that will accompany it, and then an audio podcast of the full hour-long Conversation and then also a uh, a an audio an audio reading by me of the chapter because I really dig it when when authors read their own stuff. So so that's what I, so that that is the next book. So so we'll see. Do you want this quote too? I finally found this quote. Yes. <laughs> this guy, I'm just hijacking your interview. But no, this is but great. This is Keep it going. Uh, so shifting focus from. From less and limited to, uh, to to dreams and creativity, those who persevere have more stories to tell and lessons to teach. So yeah, so so funny. This guy gave me my book and, and he came back with this with this. And I went, wow. Shifting focus from less and limited to dreams and creativity, those who persevere have more stories to tell and lessons to teach. I'm, that, wow, that's, there's a reason why I call the book Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget. I need to keep reading it <laughs> because I think like all of us, it's so easy. We learn something and then we forget it. And, oh yeah, didn't I know that before? I recently was list. I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I run or ride or whatever I'm doing, and I uh, there's it's six fifty nine miles this morning, right? 
What's that? 659 miles this morning. Uh, on your run? Yeah, were you stalking me? Yeah, that's yeah. good. I just I did that for you. I wanted you to think I was a really fast runner just today, so I ran as hard as I could. <laughs> we, gotta, we need to make sure to get that out there because some of these people might not be following you on Strava. So yeah, anyway. follow me. Yeah, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Strava, but only the good ones. But one of the books I was listening to is uh, it's called um, I can't remember the name. I think it's A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, okay. and. Um, uh, one of the things the guy talks about in the book is a friend of his made a habit of writing down everything he remembered. And their concept was that, you know, you forget so much of your life. You forget 80% of what's happened in your life. So this guy, every time he'd remember anything, whether it was, you know, when he, it could be the most mundane memory at all, but the guy would write it down. He had notebooks full of all the memories he remembered because he wanted to remember not to forget him a second time. So that was kind of interesting. You should might have to try that. Just start writing down everything you remember. It, it seems like it, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. Yeah. We'd love to go back, but, oh, wow, I haven't written in a month now. Yeah. Andrew, let me see if I can remember all the stuff that I did in that month. And yeah, it crystallizes it when you're, when you're training, it does that. So yesterday... I was talking to one of my heroes, a guy named Jim Martinson, who lost his legs in Vietnam. He built my first, my first mono ski, Boston Marathon winner, uh, just all around amazing guy. And and he was kind of he, he basically he was like the same age as my father, like six months younger than my father. But he was my roommate when we were both on the ski team together, and really became a contemporary. Other than also being a hero. And, he was talking about he lives in Washington State where they would climb this pass and their bikes like eight miles straight up and then go down and it was right before they they would plow the road before they opened the road and they would have six or eight feet or more of snowbank on the on the on each side. And he said it was just freezing on the way down. I said, Okay, okay, I, I don't have the snowbanks, but outside of my home I have a almost 1,700 foot climb in five miles. Ooh. And so I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going up it today. And so so that's what I did for my workout yesterday. It ended up being like an 11 mile workout, but five or five and a half of it was really, you know, eight and a half percent grade and this kind of stuff, like pretty, pretty serious stuff. When you start thinking, I was going back to the story of, that, I, that I often talk about, and, and when we were training, Dave Penny and I did uh, Mount Evans, and it would, there were all these false summits, and just going up the fall, you know, just think, okay, that's it, like, yeah, I'm measuring myself to that finish right there, and it's like, no, it keeps going, and I went through that same thing yesterday, where I, I remember from last year, there was a three-mile climb, and it was really closer to a six-mile climb, okay, all right, three miles, we passed three miles, we're done, but it's part of what I've had to remember kind of in my business life as well is that so often we think, well, I'm willing to do the hard work right now and then I'll get there. We always think that it'll be easier and it'll be shorter. And, and that's the that's the thing that I need to remember is that sense of, of wow, it, you just keep going through. You think I'm crushed because I didn't get there. And you only have one, you have two choices, right? You quit and you turn around or you just kind of keep going and try to find that rhythm and finding that rhythm and getting into that rhythm is the thing that keeps you going. And you learn a lot when you when you train. There are those lessons that just hit you over the head. There are, and I, <clears throat> I spoke to a group last week and just talked about little failures not being the final. You know, you're going to fail a lot along the way, but they're never, you can never, you're just one good decision or one good moment away from getting back on track. You know, it's like false summits in life. You just think you're at the summit and it's a false summit. You're going to have to keep working. You just can't coast downhill all the time. It, it, it's totally true. It, we think it's going to be easy. And, and oftentimes it is those things that are more difficult are the things that really are the part that define us that we think, wow, that was that was a moment I wouldn't trade. But in the moment, you think, I'd trade this for anything. <laughs> so there's a, uh, and we'll wrap this up pretty soon, but there's a guy, um, the podcast I listened to, 
Um, and it's a guy named Stephen Ranella, and he was talking about something he calls high-level fun. There's two differences, two kinds of fun, high-level fun and low-level fun. And he was talking about this. He was out hunting out in the woods or somewhere in Nova Scotia on the side of a mountain, and the rain was pouring in. It was miserable, and the guy he was with was complaining about how terrible it was, and he said, no, we're having high-level fun. It's, and high level, low level fun is like if you jump on a roller coaster and you just have some fun, but you don't really remember it and talk about it. And then high level fun is when you're doing this thing, it's so terrible and you want to be doing anything else. But after you're done, you look back and you think, man, that was a lot of fun. I can't wait to do that again. So I use that. Yeah, I use Warped and twisted, but, uh, but I think there's something we've got to get in touch with our warped and twisted side. Go, yeah, that was really fun. That was when I was really alive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So you kind of answered my question. I was going to ask if you you still obviously are very physically fit. You rode Pelotonia this year, and you, I follow you on Strava, so I see some of the stuff you've done. Do you still race in any way, or do you just kind of do things for fun? It's funny. I think I'm kind of reaching a bit of a crossroads. Last year, I did the Boston Marathon and I did the Chicago Marathon in my racing wheelchair, and and so those were yeah, those were races, and and I did it. Boston was awesome because we had a we had a spectacular tailwind. I went faster than I've, <laughs> faster than I've ever gone, and, and it was one of those that at about 10k, I thought this is really fast. I could be in big, big trouble. I could blow up at some point relatively soon. And luckily, I stayed on that wave the whole time and, and didn't blow up. But, uh, but I'm not sure on the on the competition side of things. It's funny because I did. We did last year. My wife and I did Pelotonia, uh, so we did 180 with Pelotonia. We did another ride in Park City, which I think had 9,000 feet of climbing over over 100 miles. One mile was, it's part of the tour of Utah, I think it is the steepest paved mile in the country. It's 16, it's 16 degrees for a mile. Everybody, again, everybody was doing switchbacks and I didn't have the luxury of doing switchbacks. I was trying to get into the lowest gear I have here and hope for the best. <laughs> hope this ends. I think it took me, it took me like 30 minutes or something like that to do that mile. This has been awesome. Thank you, uh, first of all, for um, coming on and, and sharing your just incredible stories. It's really an honor for me, honestly, to have you on and to, and to be able to share your story with everybody. So where can um, people go to learn more about you and your upcoming projects? And just to and to watch the, they got to watch the Kilimanjaro, the One Revolution documentary. Yeah. Speaking. 
all, all the memoir stuff and things like that. They can also follow me on on Instagram, which which will be directing me directing them to the, to these things. The Instagram, my Instagram is Chris Waddell Living It. So it's Chris underscore Waddell, which is W A D D E L L underscore Living underscore It. So I'm hoping. Hoping that on a daily basis I am living it, so I'm hoping that they will follow me live it. I think that's great. I, I follow you on there. I'll post all these on the show notes, and I'll put them on my Facebook page, and I'll put them on my Instagram as well, so people can catch up with you and, and keep an eye on everything you're doing. So, again, Chris, thank you so much. It's been absolutely amazing. I wish we could keep going on, but I'm probably going to have to cut this off now. So, uh, so yeah, thank you. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. All right, Chris. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. Bye-bye.